Hello and welcome to volume four of What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. On today's podcast, we're going to be tackling issues of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and questioning what exactly happened with Tesla's autopilot vehicle. We've got a full show for you today, so sit back and let's begin. I'm your co-host, Tommy Cook, and I'm joined by the wonderful and talented other co-host, Derek Silva. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. You know, it's a great time of year. The MLB is starting. We've got the NHL and NBA playoffs starting. Uh, It's a wonderful time to be alive here in Ontario. Despite the fact that there's like six inches of snow on the ground right now. I tweeted earlier today at Derek Krim. My uh, shout out. Shout out. uh, That I was just over the snow. I'm over it. I'm ready for spring. Bring on the spring, please. I could tell you had a little, uh, little extra zip in your stride when you came in the door today. It sounds like, actually, I know for sure, you had an awesome weekend interviewing Jordan Zalis. That was a fantastic podcast. Can we get him back on the show? Absolutely. Uh, volume three was uh, so much fun. We talked about Drake. We talked about basketball, the sound of basketball, cultural appropriation, the six, the six God. We talked about all these things. Covered it all. Tune in to, to Volume 3 because it was great, and I cannot wait to get Jordan back on the pod. So listen, we've got a lot queued up potentially for, for Volume 4, but because I'm co-hosting, it's my turn to ask you, what's your noise, Derek? What are we talking about today? Today, I've been really interested in this Tesla thing, in this self-autopilot uh, car that crashed into a guardrail on I-101 in, in California, and it's got me uh, really questioning um, one, how in 2018, how cool is it that we have autopilot and self-driving cars? And then the sociologist on my other shoulder is saying, wow, Derek, focus on the social implications of this. There's something happening here that's interesting sociologically. And what is that? And, and what are some of the issues with this shift towards artificial intelligence? It's been a few years since I've actually dug into matters of AI and its implications for society. I think last week's incident, as tragic as it is, is a really important opportunity for us to start exploring the noisiness inherent in AI when it meets society, because there's so many things to disentangle. Where do you want to begin? Today, my noise uh, has been uh, centered around the, the Tesla car that uh, was uh, that crashed in California earlier, I think last week. Uh, and it really had me thinking about artificial intelligence and machine learning and whether or not we're putting the cart before the horse type thing. Are we moving too fast? Are we doing too much with machine learning, with algorithms and with big data? And that is a noisy, noisy place for me. I'm sure I've ranted about this before in a previous uh, episode, but I recently read that somewhere upwards of like 2.7 quintillion bytes, 2.7 quintillion bytes of data are produced every single day, and that somewhere between 0.05 and 2% of all that data is actually sorted and treated by artificial intelligence, by algorithms, to produce ideas about uh, who we are as consumers. 
That's to, a huge number. To generate assumptions about uh, how we're valuable mm-hmm. as commodities and so on and so forth. It's, it's a, a crazy uh, discrepancy. It's a crazy small number. You know, yeah. 0.05 to 2% of everything yeah. that's made every day. And that's subject to artificial intelligence. And so you and I got talking about this a little bit this afternoon when we were texting. Artificial intelligence obviously manages information for us. But should it be managing the way we move? Should it be handling our bodies? And I, I, I'm wondering if this is why you're so interested in this Tesla thing, man. Because AI is not new. We've been talking about this for a long time. Before you and I even met, we were talking about these things. But why, why is this Tesla thing? Why is this bringing to bear this confusion for you? Is it something about the death itself? No, no, it, 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 that, sounds, that sounds grotesque, but it has nothing to do with, with the death. It has more to do with um, potential futures and what we are looking and trying to do as a society in terms of using big data and using algorithms to not only predict human behaviors, but also, as you mentioned, move us and take us in directions. and and our sort of goal right now or one of our goals is to have like self-driving cars like the jetsons or something like some futuristic society and and what does that mean when we are moving in that direction what does that mean for social relations and what does that mean for how do we make sense of all the the data and all the noise that's being generated by that shift by that move towards uh, uh using algorithms and artificial intelligence to predict human behavior but also to help us become more efficient as a society as a people as uh, moving uh, and and the like so i'm getting the sense then that part of the apprehension here that we're both experiencing with regards to the role or utility of ai is how much can it actually chew how much can it actually bite off and and handle without choking on itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How can we work through this? I th- because I think this is really significant and really important. Yeah. We talk about 2.7 quintillion bytes of, of data a day. We are talking about online algorithms. We're talking about social media algorithms. We're not necessarily talking about Tesla. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily talking about artificial intelligence driving us and moving mm-hmm. our bodies around. Mm-hmm. And it's going beyond just... Uh, when we think of big data, we tend to think of just social network and uh, publicly available data and, and data that's easy or that we, we generate on our, on our cell phones and Snapchat and Instagram. But it's not just that. Um, we're seeing movements in sociology and in, in criminology particularly towards uh, machine learning, uh, machine learning to predict crime, machine learning to make sentencing easier for uh, judges um, that have been, that other research has, has potentially pointed to the, to um, the fact that judges can be biased in their sentencing. So we move to, we, we view the answer as moving to algorithms and machine learning in order to get rid of the human element in, that, in those decisions. We see it in sport. We see the move to, to video replay. Mm-hmm. We see the move to mm-hmm. um, taking the human subjectivity out of the sport. We're seeing it in all these social domains. And I, I my noise often centers on the question of are we actually getting rid of human subjectivity are we getting rid of biases are we getting rid of the subjective assessment of situations or are we just displacing that and putting it into an algorithm 
is it saying it's objective is it okay to answer a question with another question are you okay with that I, i'm is okay that something that. we the, can do in the show the listener is going to be pulling out their hair <laughs> sorry listener <laughs> what is the difference between subjectivity and objectivity to you i don't mean like the miriam webster i mean mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Be- because i i'm getting the sense getting to know you as a sociologist derek that subjectivity is an important part of not just you and me being sociologists and researchers, but it's, it's a, like a, a thing about us being humans, mm-hmm. you know? Subjectivity seems inherent in how we live and we express ourselves, is it not? Mm-hmm. Is that something we should be avoiding? Is that what machine learning is trying to mitigate, is our subjectivity? I, I, I think it's trying to guise decision-making in objectivity by move, by, by... Uh, making something seem less human than it is. So we understand humans as being subjective, uh, uh, bias-laden things, uh, and we're a product of our life experiences. It's impossible to avoid that question. Uh, And the alternative end or the goal is often, let's move to dehumanize decision-making and put decision-making in the hands of uh, machine learning uh, algorithms, uh, uh, machine learning just simply being the ability for some sort of computer-driven machine to learn over time through the data that it's collecting to become more efficient and do a task better. And by doing that, we're putting faith in that algorithm that it, it can properly respond to the data input. There's still something about this machine learning definition that I'm struggling with. Mm-hmm. I'm getting some clarity from you. Mm-hmm. I'm finding some clairvoyance in your noise, man. Mm-hmm. And this is really productive and helpful. But do machines really learn? Do they learn like humans? Is that the assumption here? Is that the expectation that a machine is going to learn like me? I think that may be a common either misconception or a, a futuristic uh, a doomsday scenario that that machines are learning the the complexities of the world, both social and material, uh, better than us or better than the the human brain. And I don't think that's what machine learning is referring to. I think machine learning is simply some sort of uh, analysis or analytic that learns from the data that's being inputted. So data is going in. And it is changing the algorithm or it is changing its output based on that data rather than a more traditional understanding of software that would learn from human input, from putting a different version out, from software updating. This is really interesting. And it reminds me of something I read a few months ago about neural networks, Mm -hmm. pattern recognition on Facebook specifically for like facial recognition feature that Zuckerberg's been toying with. But I'm sure it's probably not going to fold out with all the garbage that he has to deal with right now that he probably put on his own plate. Yeah. But what I learned from that that explanation, the narrative, the popular narrative about how uh, machine learning works on Facebook is that it will recursively go through the same data sets every time a little bit of new data is added to the aggregate. Mm Mm-hmm so as to prevent itself from creating errors to make sure that the predictions or its ability to properly quote unquote identify a user on Facebook uh, was more accurate or something like that. Right. So I I read something wild, like 
even if a friend of a friend uploads a photo of you on Facebook. And I know you don't have a Facebook account, but let's just say you do. Even if they upload a photo of you, there is 97.7% accuracy that Facebook's neural network facial recognition algorithm is going to be able to pinpoint you out of a data set of a billion people. It's yeah. going to be able to figure you out. So are we getting closer to a, a more accurate understanding of machine learning? That it's, it's not really learning in the sense that we learn, but it's trying mm -hmm. to stop itself from making mistakes? Yeah, it's, a, it's based on a probability. As any binary set of uh, numbers, uh, as any statistics professor will tell you, that machine learning is simply based on a probabilistic calculation of error. Whereas we, as human, don't think like that. We might think in terms of rationality, we might think in terms of cost benefit, we might weigh a risk, but we're also emotional. We're also, uh, we are sometimes passionate mm. and we base our decisions on love, on hate, on fear, on anger. And those things cannot be, or at least not yet. And the dystopian um, uh, conspiracy theorists will say, well, we're going in this direction. I'm not sure we are. How do you train emotional intelligence and artificial intelligence together. I can't think of a scenario quite yet. What I'm doing is I'm looking up the Merriam-Webster mm -hmm. for machine learning. And there's, there's two parts here. One part I get and the other part I'm, I'm not really sure about. And I actually think there's some, some politics here. Mm -hmm. So the first part is pattern recognition. Yeah. When you add new data to a data set, aggregate, whatever, it's going to do whatever it can to make sure that new data belongs in the right spot, the right mm -hmm. category. Okay, mm -hmm. so we understand that. But this rules for data search thing, I'm apprehensive about. Machine learning is providing rules for data search, that it's not about the machine learning anything, mm -hmm. especially in the uh, human sense that I'm going to pick up something new and interact with it and wonder about it, or someone's going to tell me, they're going to give me some instructions yeah. about how to use this thing, about its utility, about its role in society, so on and so forth. Yeah. But in this second part of the definition, what I'm being told here, or what, what's being suggested, is that machines don't learn anything. They're mm -hmm. given rules about how to manage new data that hasn't seen before. Yeah. So I'm wondering, and my question then, what happens when it's sorting through data through a system of rules? Are we really talking about a machine that's learning or is it just reflecting what we want it to do because mm -hmm. we don't want to get involved in the process at all? I've, I've already identified earlier that of 2.7 quintillion bytes of data uploaded every day, we're using like 2% of it. Less than 2% of it's actually being used. The rest of it's just being hoarded. I don't really think there's any machine learning going on at all. I think we're just telling machines how to handle stuff that we don't want to deal. Yeah, and we set we set the parameters for how that statistical uh, technique or how that algorithm can learn, can quote unquote learn, um, can use and use that data uh, to uh, change decisions or to do something different. We set those parameters, and that's where my noise stems from. That's where my question of this machine learning stems from, because mm -hmm. we tend to think of algorithms as being somehow neutral, somehow politic-free, somehow bias-free, judgment-free. But if we are setting the parameters, is that not just displacing that bias or those biases uh, and that judgment and 
that perspective uh, to a single group or entity or political uh, uh, take or political perspective, whoever is setting those parameters. They have a decision. They make a decision. They have an idea of the world. They have a politics. And if they're setting those rules, what does that say about the entire infrastructure that is that algorithm? Is that bias-free? One of the things that I recall reading in the first year of my doctorate, which was in science and technology studies at York University. So you have a good background. I've got a diverse background, some of which I never really fully committed to, (laughs) apparently, because I didn't stay in the SDS program. Yeah. but. Edward Jones Imatep, who is another guy that we should really work on getting on the show. Another shout out, fantastic scholar. He introduces me to a piece of literature that talks about the politics and the socialness of a laboratory space. Mm -hmm. So I'm walking into a classroom after having read this thing, and I'm thinking to myself, can my classroom have politics too? Are there social dynamics going on? Absolutely. But politics? That I couldn't quite get my head around. And how could that be the case inside of a laboratory? Because I always understood the space of a laboratory to be about science, to be about binaries. You're going to prove that something works, and it's going to be grounded in truth claim, right? You can't argue beyond that. There is something absolutely non-negotiable about the outcome of science. Of course, which I learned later is a bunch of crap. But my point is here is that it seems that the politics you're talking about, about the instructions given to programmers that build algorithms, the the social relationships that drive them, the corporate cultures that allow these programmers to sit down and do their job in the first place, Mm -hmm. influence the behavior of the algorithm. So the politics of the programming, the politics of the corporation, must exist in the actual execution of the algorithm itself. Am Am I correct in assuming this? Yeah. Well, this is really fascinating because I I thought numbers didn't have politics. I thought the numbers were just binaries. If there's only ones and zeros, if data can only be reduced to ones and zeros, how can there be politics? Numbers. uh, We'll get better at this, by the way. Yeah, no, I'll just cut that out uh, and then (laughs) start again. It kind of caught me a little off guard with the... No, no, don't cut this out. This is perfect. This is (laughs) is an interesting interesting part of the the Uh, chat here. I think a common um, way or oversimplification of data is that it's just a binary uh, zero one. It, it, It can be. That can be the physical manifestation, the visual manifestation, the logical manifestation mm-hmm. of data. But you use data and you interpret data. And at the end of the machine learning process, somebody makes a decision. At the beginning of the machine learning process, somebody is making a decision about that data so while a representation may be zero one or some sort of binary code our understanding as decision makers that live in a political realm in a social realm our interpretation of that data is always political and our creation of that data is always social is always therefore also i would argue political uh, I, I don't think you can necessarily uh, dissect or, or differentiate the political from the social. Interesting. This is making more sense to me. Now, to, to, to bring it down from the clouds just a little bit, uh, I'm reminded of a study that was done in 2016 um, by a McMaster 
computer scientist. Zalin Wu, I think was his name, and a colleague, uh, Z Zhang, I think. Uh, and it was uh, trying to predict criminality based on facial recognition. And what they did was they built a computer program to comb the internet for faces of people. Faces that didn't have any tattoos, any noticeable scars, any marks or anything. And they compared that to pictures of known criminals. And they tried to identify the facial characteristics that make somebody a criminal. Very much like uh, a famous criminologist who tried to uh, measure the distance between the eye and measure the distance from the, the lip to the top of, or to the bottom of the nose to try to identify criminality way back and he was a a quote-unquote father of criminology and he created this idea that we can predict criminality based on facial patterns based on those distances between the eyes so this goes way back his name's lombroso okay and he he used uh phrenology which is the study Mm. of uh facial uh, of bone structure and all these things to predict that crime would be in certain classes it was uh, not really scientific. It was pseudoscience. It was based on uh, minor observations, and it was in the early 20th, 19th, 20th centuries. But these scholars tried to take that same idea and use it, use pictures, and use machine machine learning, uh, and use machine learning to uh, identify some of these characteristics. And they found that you can predict differences um, based on this uh, machine, this huh. algorithm that based on pictures you can predict it could predict up to 90 percent uh or be 90 percent accurate of who is a criminal and who is not and there were a bunch of problems it sounds right oh oh my god computer algorithms are working machine machine uh learning is going to allow us to look at pictures uh of of people and predict whether or not they're going to be a criminal but then you peel back the layer and look at the decision making that was going and setting the parameters of this machine learning and what they did was they scraped the internet for pictures pictures of people without um without scars or without tattoos on their faces and then they compared them to a pre a pre-gathered uh bunch of mugshots of convicted criminals what do we know of pictures that are online they're often professional style photos they're touched up uh, they're your LinkedIn profile that you're sitting there. It's just your face. You look your best. What do we know about people who commit crimes and they take a mugshot? They often look their worst. So this, even right there, when you know those two, that one sort of variable, are you predicting criminality or are you predicting ugliness or are you predicting disheveledness? These are all great questions, and I'm seeing why there are so many slippery slopes then. Yeah, because at the end of the day, there are still choices in how we use the data and how we set the parameters for which that data will be learned by the machine. I'm a bit apprehensive about the idea that politics comes after data, and I want to stay with this just for another minute before we move back into... Um, talking a little bit more widely about the social and political problems of, of AI, because I know that's coming up. Yeah. I, I took a lot of the late 
uh, late 80s and early postmodern feminist literature mm-hmm. really seriously throughout my formation in grad school. And what that sort of suggested to me was that there is a lot of space and a lot of matter between binaries, ones and zeros that constitute data. When I look at a data set, I'm not necessarily looking at just ones and zeros. It can be more complex than that. But their derivative is binaries, mm-hmm. ones and zeros, mm-hmm. right? Which are flickering lights. And there's a decision about or behind having to decide what is on and what is off. In order for anything to be represented in coherence, in language that's discernible to humans, programming language has to start at the basis of deciding what is black and what is white, what is on and what is, what is off. And so while I'm totally in agreement that there's politics inside of the programming process and the politics are behind the preferences and the rules that are created for algorithms, I, I'm of the belief, philosophically anyhow, that the politics starts in the creation of the language of computers itself. And so when people say that AI in Tesla's car may or may not have gotten somebody killed, or it's about um, some, some programming culture that's responsible, the rules that are designed for the algorithm to do its job in the first place, I get that. But aren't we sort of damned from the moment that we start programming itself? That's what I'm getting at here. Mm-hmm. I think by virtue of creating computers and creating something like a computational language, we are deferring responsibility to something else, which means there's always going to be risk. There's always going to be accidents. Yeah. We're, always, we're always going to end up in a situation where we're having these sorts of conversations, right? I, I just think that there's politics inherent in, in using computers and creating them in our image right from the get-go. I don't think this is just about politics that comes from how we work with data thereafter. Yeah. I guess I'm not comfortable sanctifying data on its own terms. Yeah, and, and I, by that same token, I'm not completely comfortable with, or uh, I, I can never fully get behind anyone who would suggest that a computer algorithm or, or data is value free is neutral is uh, uh is disconnected from from emotion from human uh, subjectivity i i can't get behind that it's always a product of a particular social environment there's always um some give or take and as you put it risk there's always some risk even if you create an entire society a dystopian 1984 society well, those are my favorite around computer algorithms and machine learning there's always risk that something will not work the way it's intended that something will fail Uh. that something will uh, force an autopilot uh, beautiful car into a guardrail or that something will go wrong and that that car will glide into the guard there's always going to be risk so there's just as we're responsible in the world for our actions we also need to understand that uh, one of our actions is our inaction in light of computer algorithms. That we put too much, or we are potentially putting too much blind faith in something that might appear to be objective or neutral, but is really not. If I were to record that on paper and use that as like a thesis in my own 
single authored paper, would you be okay with that? That was brilliant. It's on, it's on the pod now. I think that um, was my so... favorite Derek moment. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. No, I'm really passionate about um, machine learning because I see its benefit and I see its uh, limitation uh, or see its benefits and limitations, I should say. Um, and that's what makes me so passionate about it or so interested in it because, yeah, uh, it might make a lot of sense to try to take out when you think of I'm a criminologist and I'm interested in crime and deviance and I'm interested in the criminal justice system. And if we can take out some of the inadequacies of the criminal justice system, particularly around sentencing mm -hmm. and resentencing and um, offending, if we can take out some of the human element of that, I think we would we would overall be better off. If we can take the judges out of making these uh, decisions solely on their own interpretation, I think in most respects we'd be better off. But those computer algorithms might still be biased. They might still disproportionately affect the exact same people that they're already disproportionately impacting. And we can't, we can't act as if machine learning and introducing machine learning right. is right. a panacea to um, solving some of these issues. We, I don't believe we can. So that's what makes me so interested in this. What if these algorithms create more problems than solutions? And I don't necessarily mean problems in an obvious sense. I mean problems for people that we never hear about. I mean problems for people like refugees. Mm. I mean problems for people who are not Caucasians. I'm talking about disenfranchised components mm -hmm. of society who get caught up because they browse the internet in a certain way, which means nothing about who they are, mm -hmm. but cross-identified or cross-correlated and in tandem with some flags that they've never seen about themselves created by some sort of security agency these people are getting into trouble yeah i'm wondering how we're supposed to put a limit on or generate some transparency perhaps with regards to the usage of algorithms and social media we we, we just talked about and you said this yourself the grotesque part about you know ai recently in the headlines and tesla getting somebody killed but there are serious social implications as well that are somewhere in between and i think this would be a great way to to end off our segment is just to talk a little bit about wider social issues let's go a little bit more sociological here because mm -hmm. it is our bread and butter yeah and i wonder if we can like even just have some fun and go on google for a second and mess around with some auto autocomplete searches have you ever done this before no i haven't so this is this is controversial and i i think it was more controversial a few years ago. Yeah. Because it used to be the case that I could enter in a search query on Google and its algorithms are going to learn about me and it's going to feed me back autocomplete that reflects my interest, so to speak. And there was some flack that Google dealt with. And I think they've since adjusted this, but I want to test it a little bit. I want to see what autocomplete tells me about what people want to see. Mm. when they do searches online. All right, so how do you propose we do this? Let's look up something you're interested in. Um, uh, 
So we're talking about uh, Tesla. So why don't we start with Tesla? Sure. Uh, how do people usually do this? Is Tesla? Yep. And then it's supposed to complete. Is uh, Tesla? Is Tesla? Um. So I have a. Is Tesla profitable? Is Tesla making money? Is Tesla the fastest car? Is Tesla American? Is Tesla worth it? Is Tesla publicly traded? Is Tesla Canada? Is Tesla Canada? That's a good one. I wish we Grammatically, were Grammatically uh, very uh, interesting. Did you know that there's a, a statue of uh, 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 Nikola Tesla in Niagara Falls? Really? I've always wondered why. I think it has something to do with the falls, the power generation at the falls. It has to. I, I think I've actually seen this building before. My girlfriend and I go down to Niagara on the lake all the time. We stay in Niagara. Mm. falls and she pointed out a building and she's like oh something something tesla yeah so that that kind of makes sense so we're getting very similar yeah autocomplete so that addresses uh that concern and i'm glad that's not an issue anymore but why don't we try looking up something slightly different yeah how about entering in our soccer players overpaid tall Tall. strong athletes paid too much short Paid weekly. I'm short. I've got that that one checked off. Maybe I could become so a professional. The, so soccer they're all player. the same. So what are we getting from that? Our searches are the same, but is this accurately reflecting what it is that society wants to learn about soccer players? Well, isn't isn't that what it's supposed to do? Isn't it supposed to just reflect what it is we as a society are interested but in? But is, isn't that just perpetuating the same like face value narrative that we've been concerned with? that AI just works as mm-hmm. black and white. There's no politics. Is there politics here? Are there social implications by, there has because to of be, these? There has to be social implications. Now, um, why don't we uh, type something a little bit more controversial? Okay. Um, why don't we go, are Syrian refugees? Uh, and, and start to go through uh, where the lead uh, or where Google's taking us. So are Syrian refugees still coming to Canada? Are Syrian refugees educated? Are Syrian refugees allowed to vote? Are they vetted? Are Syrian refugees allowed in the U.S.? Are they stateless? Are they Shia or Sunni? Are they going back to Syria? Are they mostly male? Interesting. Can we learn anything about Syrian refugees because of these sorts of things? Like if we actually click one of these and follow the Google search through, mm-hmm. what can we actually learn? I'm really interested in even what uh, is, what's the narrative here? And the narrative here seems to be um, there is a, uh, a, a question of uh, where people are allowed in terms of mobility and, and um, state formation. That is an interesting question here. There's, are they coming to this country? Are Syrian refugees allowed to be in this country? Are they stateless? Are they going back as if Syrian refugees are not welcome? So I guess one of the implications here is, is that it's making Syrian refugees aliens. It's making them an alien mm-hmm. concept, that they can't just be people that we could go and talk to on the street and learn about on our own terms. But the starting place with regards to learning about a different culture or a different social identity is whether or not they can vote in Canada if they're allowed to move around. And this is often how we go about learning things in the digital age, right? When, when you're out, out with your friends and you guys are all, uh, you and your friends are all talking, 
Um, somebody says something. And you're like, I don't know if that's true. What's the first thing you do? You whip out your cell phone with your iPhone and you start searching whether or not that's true. And oftentimes you don't have time to actually go through the Wikipedia page and read <laughs> all the words. There's lots of words there. Is there an algorithm for that? So you, sim- <laughs> you just type it in and then it completes the sentence for you. And is that disconnected from, is that neutral first off? Is that objective second? Is, is that disconnected from a political regime or even just a social? We don't even have to get political with it, but is that disconnected from um, a, a, a social context for which we can learn a lot from? I, I'm wondering in my mind personally, is there a responsibility for deciding how people are going to access knowledge in, one, in what order? Mm-hmm. So there is this, this critique out there about filter bubbles, right? That social media algorithms feed you what you want to see and you're never ever exposed to adversity. You never actually see anything different that challenges the way you think and engage the world, yeah. the way you respond, the way you vote, the way you shop, right? So... Should the algorithm have a button? Should algorithms have like a balance slider somewhere that will allow you to see things that you don't necessarily agree with or perhaps uh, challenge the way it is that you, th- you think about the world? Isn't that what keeps us uh, civically responsible? Isn't that what keeps us, uh, you know, productive members of society mm-hmm. as liberal democratic subjects that we ought to think about things that are uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. so that we can collectively make a decision about things. Because as far as I can tell, this is not only just feeding back to us what a handful of people are thinking about, but it's not taking into consideration whether or not these search results are problematic, mm-hmm. but whether or not they're going to affect the people that they're allegedly speaking to. Now, now think, think back to what we, when we started this conversation. I think it's really it's kind of coming full circle because... When you said that you don't think that these are machines that are these machines are learning at all because we set the parameters. Right. If there was a reset algorithm on every device, every computer uh, that would reset the algorithm completely, that machine would no longer have parameters in which it could learn by. It would be almost useless in its main purpose of um, learning, if you will. And those parameters that we have set as a, a society or even as a single engineer would be futile. I think these, the machines or the algorithms, however you want to define it conceptually, the statistical techniques, however you want to define machine learning um, abstractly and theoretically, I think it needs parameters. And it's those parameters in which we can tease out the politics of machine learning. And it needs, the, the machines need the parameter in which they can learn or they'll learn nothing. You've got me. You've absolutely got me. It's a fantastic point. I have no rebuttal. I don't think hitting reset is going to be productive here. Mm-hmm. If we continue down this path, there needs to be some tweaking though. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I have to go back to this idea before we finish up here. Yeah. What about a balance button? What about parameters? that push the algorithm to feed us things that will make us uncomfortable, to feed us things that do not fit within our so-called worldview, because it already has an assumption. Mm-hmm. And the people who design these algorithms, they already have an assumption about what it is that I want to see 
as Tommy Cook or what you want to see as Derek Silva because they've got the data. Yeah. So to what extent should they be giving us search results that do not fit what it is that they think they know about us or what it is that we actually want to see? I think that the assumption um, or the place that you're coming from, the perspective that you are coming from is um, questioning and, and being a little bit uh, uh, critical of machine learning and of algorithms as used. Um, but you can't ignore that people are comfortable. People like it. People don't mind that their Google history, for the most part, people don't mind that Google will finish their sentence for them. That when they search a, a new pair of shoes on Amazon, that it shows up. I don't really mind that much. I think sometimes we, we as scholars overestimate the the fact that people or underestimate the fact that some people just are okay with it they're okay with the increased efficiency sure if you want to shop for shoes fine i get mm -hmm. that but what if it's perpetuating racism mm -hmm. what if it's in the context of somebody having a discussion on twitter about going down to a, a newly minted mp's house who just happens to be a muslim and spray painting their garage yep. doors yep. this has been happening in our country yep. it happened a lot in 2017 it's happening now, and this is just Canada. Yeah, There are more refugees coming. The stakes are as high as they've ever been. Look at the discourse on the alt-right and the alt-left right now in the U.S. alone, and there is cause for concern here. And These algorithms are intimately related to a lot of violence that happens on the ground. Yeah. So how do we disentangle this, or can we? I think, I, I think we can. I think we can, and I think there are some amazing people doing some amazing work. Ryan Scrivens at Concordia uh, University. Shout he, out. Shout out, and we're going to get him on the pod as well. Oh, so, I like that. Um, because his work is fantastic. And, and he has been trying to, um, or he's been creating, constructing, and developing these uh, sentiment-based tools that can pull out um, hate speech and can, to some extent, predict whether or not somebody will become more and more radical. He focuses on right-wing extremists uh, uh, and forms of... Um, right-wing extremism and he's trying to trace out the sentimental turns so the terms um, that people use on on uh, uh, web forms and on 4chan and stormfront and all these mm -hmm. different websites mm -hmm. and trying to trace out the trajectory towards uh, engaging in violence and he's getting some great results so i think in those in those um, environments in those contexts it's needed it's useful and i think most people the overwhelming majority of people will get behind those. But when we think of the more mundane uh, forms of uh, machine learning, um, the tools that we use on an everyday basis, I don't, I don't know if people care as much as we in the realm of uh, the academy um, think. I think people are okay with efficient searching. I think if you start to talk to them about net neutrality and cost changes and uh, bandwidth allocation based on their subscription, I think people care about those things at the, at the, when it hits them on a resource level. But when it comes to, to searching on Google and whether or not that um, is a, an issue for them, I, I'm not sure if people care. If there and is, that's not enough. Like, I know it's that, definitely not enough. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't think that that's a justification to not push, to not push as as uh, as a citizenry and as a populace to make these things more transparent. I don't think that's enough. But um, what I think is, um, I think we can't ignore that machine learning is also creating efficient modes of human interaction. It is partly successful, and I think that often gets left out i am the, the very fact that there is tesla and tesla is a multi-billion dollar company being traded at over 200 dollars us dollars almost 300 us dollars on the stock exchange that yesterday the model s became the the highest uh selling uh electric car in the united states you can't deny that that might have something to do with the benefits of machine learning and i'm okay with tesla because uh, I believe in climate change, and I believe that a future of electric cars is is beneficial. So the, there's been there's so many benefits to machine learning, but there's also all of these drawbacks, and there's so much at stake. I'm personally concerned as a scholar because there is an obvious empirical disconnect between the accounts, the physical accounts of how people have been implicated in terms of their mobility and their human security yeah. and their privacy. And what it is that they're doing at home on their computers, I get, I'm totally with you, man. Like, mm -hmm. I, I get that it's convenient and it will accelerate and make certain things more efficient. And aside from getting people killed once in a while, mm -hmm. there is also this problem about not being able to get through a border or not being able to securely access a passport or having state police people knocking at your door asking, yeah. hey, you, you guys looked up backpacks and pressure cookers last week. Do you mind if we look through your house? Don't worry, we do this 100 times a week. We never catch anybody, but it's part of our job. Those kinds of things are empirical disconnects because they're happening, and there, there hasn't been sustained research and investigation into them. Yeah. So I think maybe I'll start finding my clairvoyance and my clarity in the noise by pursuing these kind of projects, and I hope that, that your friend up in uh, Concordia University yeah, said... Exactly. Yeah, Concordia. Well, big shout out if we can get you on the show to help, uh, help make sense of that dimension of things a little bit more at least to calm me down a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think I'd really appreciate that. No, you, you, make, you make a lot of really, really uh, good points and points I, I absolutely do not uh, disagree with because at the end of the day, where we're at in our current um, technological realm is machine learning is still being viewed as in terms of an assistance, of some sort of assistance mm -hmm. to a governmental project or to an intervention of some sort. It's still being used to inform human decision making. And I don't know if it ever won't be. And, it, and since it is being used to inform uh, I, a bunch of interventions, as you mentioned, um, there is always going to be room for disproportionate and, and unequal forms of, uh, of, of govern, government interference, uh, particularly when you think of people who are already disenfranchised, who are already facing forms of discrimination. It's, it's, it might be even more justifiable if using these algorithms, um, which is a question that we need to keep harping on. And as long as those questions continue and as long as we continue trying to pursue these matters of noise, I think we're going to be successful. Listen, man, this has been really interesting. I really appreciate this. I'd really like to follow up with this friend of yours mm -hmm. over at Concordia. But let's wrap it up, for the, uh, wrap it up there for now. This has been another successful volume 
of what's that noise, pursuing matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll look forward to chatting with you again soon. See you later. Peace. Thank you for listening to another episode of What's That Noise? If you enjoyed the show, please follow us on Twitter at WTNCast, at Derek Krim, or at Thomas N. Cook. And please subscribe to our channel on iTunes or Google Play Music. Until next time, keep listening for the noise.